Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents The Cauldron by Zeno, read by Al Murray. Chapter 17. In the house at the corner of the road, Bridgman stood in the doorway of an upper room and looked at Cassidy's back. The German Jew knelt in the cover of a wall, his eyes fixed on the short stretch of road, which was all he could see from his position. In the room behind him, O'Neill faced the open ground to the south, and on his right, against the wall, McEwen lay sprawled, his dead head resting against the plaster at an odd angle, like a hanged man, and the knuckles of his half-clenched fists resting lightly on the floor, as if he were going to propel himself to his feet at any moment. O'Neill could hear Murray's laboured breathing as he gasped out the last of his life in the far corner near the door. O'Neill glanced over his shoulder as Bridgman came into the room and bent over Murray, speaking to him quietly and listening to his broken, whispered reply. 
He looked back quickly and had time to send a shot whistling after a disappearing grey back as a German soldier ran for the cover of the trees which screened the Hotel Tafelberg, the lower of the three main buildings being used as British hospitals. I'm going for Sergeant Blake and his section, Bridgman's words jerked out. I'll send Brogan over. Hang on till I get back. I shouldn't think anything will happen for a bit. O'Neill could understand the quick workings of the lieutenant's mind as he considered and rejected a host of possibilities. Half an hour earlier, Murray's section had been eight strong and the best rested section in the platoon. Now Murray was dying, McEwen was dead, and with the exception of Cassidy and O'Neill, the remainder were dead or wounded. O'Neill heard Bridgman's footsteps die away as he reached the hall and heard the faint stir of Cassidy changing position in the room behind him. He looked down at the still-smoking hulk of the Panther tank, which lay on the road, 50 yards in front of him and slightly to his right, and tried to reconstruct the confusion of the short double action. When he and Bridgman had arrived in the house in answer to Cassidy's signal, they had found McEwen and Bowbrow watching the Panther as it lumbered across the open ground some 150 to 200 yards below them. It was firing as it came on, but its gun was directed at the positions to the south, and German infantry was moving in short dashes behind it. They had just had time to take in the situation when intense firing had broken out from Murray's house above them. Bridgman had hesitated for only a moment. Calling to O'Neill and Cassidy to come with him, he had stopped at the door for a second and looked straight back at McEwen. If that panther turns up this way, you stop it. Understand, Corporal, you stop it. They had left McEwen standing flat-footed in the centre of the room, his mouth half open and his face scowling. Crawling through the garden to the house above them, they had caught glimpses of the armour in the road, and as they were about to climb through an open window, Murray had come bundling out on top of them. He had grinned his relief at Bridgman's arrival, and taking Cassidy with him, had dashed to the cover of the knocked-out Mark IV. When the last tank had retreated to the turn in the road and disappeared, Bridgman, Murray, Cassidy and himself had returned to McEwen's house to find out what had happened to the panther. They had found the big corporal and Bowbrow pressed back against the wall and peering at where the tank had come to rest, 50 yards short of the house. Bridgman had taken one look and turned on McEwen. I told you that tank was to be stopped. The officer's words had bitten into the hushed stillness of the room, the contemptuous acid of his tone burning into them all, so that even O'Neill had felt ashamed for McEwen. The Scot had protested loudly, his eyes wide and angry. I was waiting for it to get closer, sir. Murray had stepped forward so sharply that O'Neill had thought he was going to hit the corporal. You yellow bastard! How much closer do you want the stuffing thing to get? I've tumbled you, Jock. You're all right with your fists. Even if you lose, nothing much can happen to you, can it? But this is different, isn't it? That's enough! Bridgman's order had brought them all back to reality, and they'd looked out at the panther. Its gun was traversing slowly, and O'Neill detected a faint movement in the bushes behind it. There was German infantry between themselves and 4th Brigade's headquarter platoon. Bridgman had made his decision quickly. Leaving Murray, McEwen and Cassidy in the house, he had taken O'Neill and Bowbrow with him. They had barely turned the corner below them when the tank armed with a flamethrower struck behind them. The hot blast of its final shot passed within 20 yards of where they lay before striking one of the houses held by Gorman. O'Neill sensed Bridgman's momentary indecision. Then they were crawling on towards the panther. They never reached it. It erupted in a sudden sheet of flame when they were still 30 yards short of it. O'Neill had no idea how it had been knocked out, whether it was by one of the few remaining anti-tank guns firing from the Lonsdale force positions or whether by men from the brigade headquarter platoon. They had stood up to make their dash back too soon and Bobra had been hit in the shoulder. As Bridgman and O'Neill had made their way back into the burning house, Bobrow had headed for the stable and Brogan. Now O'Neill let his mind slide quickly over what they had found in the far house. They had only just managed to get the flames under control before moving the still living bodies of Wark and Bannum into the hall. 
Getting back into the corner house had been difficult, with the whole length of the road under observed enemy fire, but they had done it. They had met Cassidy at the top of the stairs, and he had nodded his head at the back bedroom before moving into the room looking out onto the road. Inside, they had found Murray and McEwen. O'Neill wondered what had happened. He would have liked to ask Cassidy, but he couldn't do that without leaving his post. Well, it could wait, but it was strange that Bridgman hadn't asked. Marston, Hudson and Laverty followed Bridgman across the open gardens. The platoon commander had changed his mind. He was still keeping Blake and a few men in reserve, showing the reluctance of all commanders to commit their entire complement. Bridgman put them in the lower house with Cassidy and sent O'Neill to company headquarters for Doc Barber and a stretcher party. Then he slipped across to Gorman to learn how badly things were going with him. As he and O'Neill entered the back of the house, Gorman came to the door of the room he was in and stared blankly at the platoon commander. What's the score, Frank? Cummings and Fraser are dead. Gorman's voice sounded distant. For the first time in his soldiering, he had been shaken out of, not complacency, but an ability to accept with resignation the blows of fate. It was not the death of the two men or the fact that if the flamethrower had been directed a few feet higher, it would have been he and not Fraser who was lying faceless and dead. It was not the number of casualties suffered by the company or the division. It was as if he had suddenly realised for the first time that their position was hopeless. In ordinary circumstances, if there were any ordinary circumstances in war, Anti-tank guns would have been available to deal with the armoured flamethrower should it return, or they would have fallen back to other houses. But now, now he could see nothing they could do except wait to be burned out, house by house. If they fell back and joined Blake, they would be worse off, for armour would be able to advance unseen to within 40 yards of them. Uncovered by fire, the derelict tanks would present an obstacle to the enemy for only the few minutes it would take to winch one far enough aside to allow room to pass others through. Only now was Gorman appreciating, to the full, the isolation of the platoon, an isolation shared by every subunit in the division. The knowledge that Major Jordan and the remainder of the company were in a position on their left, and that General Urquhart and his headquarters were only a hundred yards behind where they stood, no longer gave him any confidence. Everybody was in the same situation. Support as such was no longer a practicable possibility. In protecting their own flanks, every unit protected the flanks of those on each side of them, but that was as far as it went. Beyond that, there was nothing any unit could do to help any other. The platoon was now simply a small group of men armed with rifles, light machine guns and a couple of piots, opposed by anything the Germans might care to throw against them. Gorman shook his head and walked back into the room, and Bridgman followed him. There you are, Brogan. I looked for you in the stable. Get across to Murray. He's in a bad way. I've sent for Doc and a stretcher party, but we're going to have a hell of a job getting the wounded out. We may have to wait till it's dark, if they can live that long. We can only just get in and out of the houses ourselves. Cut along and see what you can do for them. The medical orderly nodded and turned to go. Bridgman called him back. The whole of the short road is under observed fire. There's only one way to get in. Crawl from here till you get to the stable. Work up from there till you get to Murray's house. Then make a dash for it. His house will screen you from then on. Bridgman nodded towards the road running past the house they were in. But there's a bloody sniper somewhere who's got this road covered. I think he's the other side of Mr Brown somewhere, beyond Company HQ, probably in the top hospital. The bastards have captured that and I suspect they're using it as a vantage point. You'll be all right so long as you move fast across the road, all right? Brogan nodded again, dropped a hand to steady his first aid kit and then he was gone through the open door. Bridgman looked across the room to where Gorman had got down alongside Hardy who lay behind the Spandau. They both looked bad. From where he stood flattened against the wall, Bridgman could see the short road more clearly than he'd been able to from either of Murray's houses. The wrecked marked four and the self-propelled gun blocked the road effectively and he knew the burning panther would stop any armour coming at them from the south. They were boxed in but the enemy tanks were boxed out. 
The flamethrowers were going to be the biggest worry. What happened here exactly, Frank? Gorman looked over his shoulder, and when he spoke, his voice was flat and lifeless. After the armour went back, they sent another, a big bastard. Either a tiger or a royal, I don't know the difference. The flamethrower was in that. It hit John's houses first, and then this one. If they'd followed it up with infantry, I should think they'd have got through, unless Summers and his chaps could have stopped them. If it takes another bash at us, I reckon we're stuffed. What the bloody hell can we do? What do you fight tiger tanks and flamethrowers with? Your bare hands? We just hang on, Frank. Hang on till Second Army get here. Stuff Second Army. What about the Poles? Someone said they'd landed south of the river at Drill. That's right. Some of them got over to us last night. Not many, but some. Gorman's eyes lit up for a moment, shining with a new hope. Any chance of them all getting over? They must be a good couple of thousand of them, and they're bloody good troops. I like the Poles. They've got guts. When Bridgman didn't reply, Gorman looked back at the still road. He wondered idly what had happened to the German who had put his hands up and tried to surrender. There was no body where he had knelt. He thought about the poles again, thought of the perimeter as if it were a drained body, and then thought how it would be if suddenly infused with 2,000 fresh and fighting fit poles. Perhaps it would alter everything. Perhaps they would be able to break the ring of steel which held them in position, waiting for the kill. When Gorman spoke again, Bridgman detected a deep note of bitterness. Perhaps it's better if they don't get across. There's been enough good troops wasted already. If Second Army keep their finger in, it'll just mean 2,000 more men lost. He drew a long, shuddering breath. Stuff, Second Army, he said, and his shoulders sagged. Bridgman looked down past the wrecked tanks, wondering what he could say, when he saw two flashes of movement across the few yards gap between the end house on the left of the road and the left-hand house of those facing him. A burst of fire came from Mocock and Lydon a split second after the last figure disappeared. The distance the Germans had to cover was too short for aimed fire to stop them, but they would have to be stopped. Alan wondered whether Gordon Brown's platoon could help. They might bring an oblique, semi-enfilade fire to bear. He turned back to Gorman. Second Army can't be as bad as they appear to us, he said. There must be reasons we know nothing about that have held them up. At any rate, we're in touch with their gunners. They did a good shoot this morning and broke up an attack on the border companies. Gorman continued to look out of the window. What do you really think, sir? The truth. Do you think they'll get across to us? Do you think they'll even try now? Staring at the back of Gorman's head, Bridgman wondered what he really did think himself. All he wanted to think about was how first his own platoon and then the company would hold the positions for which they were responsible. It had become all important to him that nothing his unit did should be open to criticism. No matter where any of the faults might lie, he was determined that none should ever be laid at their door. No, Frank, I don't think they'll get across. I think they'll be too extended to risk it. But I do think they'll try to get us out. I don't think their reasons will be good ones, or even military ones, but public opinion wouldn't allow them to leave us here. The British will tolerate the occasional sacrifice of a general if a campaign goes wrong through no fault of his. They were prepared to swallow Wavell's dismissal, but they won't swallow troops being abandoned after they've fought well. From a military point of view, of course, it's senseless. If Second Army gets what's left of us out, we'll play no more part in this war. It'll be over before we're reorganised, and they'll have pretty heavy casualties getting to us. But they'll try, because it's all part of the game. Bridgman paused and suddenly realised how he would get the Germans out of the houses at the bottom of the road. He immediately felt better. He would make these three houses untenable, if nothing else. But he continued thoughtfully. Our people don't have the right attitude to war when we're winning. They had it all right for a bit after Dunkirk. If the Jerrys had tried invasion then, I reckon we'd have pulled every stop out. No trick would have been too dirty. Gas, petrol, we'd have used everything to prevent being beaten. But we don't do enough to win. Once we're on top, we think it's easy just a question of time. When this lot's over... If any of us get out, I can tell you, almost word for word, what they'll say to us. What will they say to us, sir? 
Gorman turned his head till he was looking back over his shoulder at Bridgman. His face was calm again, the tenseness and despair washed out of it. His grubby face and unshaved beard, his pinched nose and bloodshot eyes could not conceal the eagerness of his curiosity. He really wanted to know what they, the British public and the world, would say about this action being fought in and around Arnhem. Bridgman didn't reply at once, for one half of his mind was working out the final details of how to clear the Germans from the three houses. They'll say, he said, choosing the predictable clichés, they'll say that although the operation was not entirely successful, our sacrifice was not in vain, that without our gallant stand other successes would have been impossible. They'll say that this battle will go down in the history books as an example of the indomitable courage of the British soldier in adversity. We shall all be heroes. All those who get back will be fated. And whether the individual was a hero or a coward, no one will know or care. He paused, deciding that he would borrow one of Brown's piots to help in the house clearing, and one of his two-inch mortars as well. He went on, his voice rising and falling like that of a trained platform speaker. In 20 years' time, the man in the street will never have heard of the Battle of Arnhem, or he'll only recall it by an effort of memory. And in 50 years' time, the military history books will devote a few lines to it as an unfortunate strategic error, an attempt to shorten the war that didn't come off. That's what we must face now. The bloody operations of failure. We need to take a short break now. I'll see you in a tick. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Listen closely. As a master painter carefully brushes Benjamin Moore Regal Select down the seam of the wall. Mm. It's like poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore. See the love. When it comes to fitness, what's real? How about when it really, truly fits your life? That's how Anytime Fitness sees it. Because our coaches see you. It's how they build personal plans that work wherever you are and focus on everything that matters, from fitness to nutrition to recovery, all so you can push yourself further than ever or just through the next rep. It's total 360 support for a real difference. That's Anytime Fitness. That's Real AF. Visit anytimefitness.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome back to Zeno's The Cauldron. Gorman looked at Bridgman again, his face sick and slack. Seeing it, Alan spoke quickly. But our platoon hasn't failed, Frank. What we were asked to do, we've done. It would be difficult to see how it could have been done better. We've gone where we were told to go and we've brought troops, gliders and supplies when and where we were told to bring them in. He paused. And we haven't lost a position. We've got nothing to be ashamed of. I should think old Tim's proud of the company. Sad at the losses, of course, but proud just the same. But from now on, sir, what happens from now on? Gorman's face was calm again, but wistful, like that of a disappointed but well-mannered child. We hang on and hope. 
Hope the second army does get across to us. Hope that something really constructive can be salvaged out of the operation. Hope that we're wrong in our criticism. Hope that we can continue to hold where we're told to hold till we're ordered to move forward or back. And in the meantime, we kill Germans. He looked out of the window, then grinned suddenly down at Gorman. And I'm going to kill a few now. At the rate they've been getting across, these houses must be full of the bastards. Keep down and don't initiate anything till I get back. We'll give the swine something to remember. He went out. Gorman heard voices in the hall and recognised Doc Barbers. He heard Bridgman giving directions about the wounded and then the voices died away and he was alone with the silent Hardy and the dead Fraser. He looked at Hardy, motionless behind the Spandau, only his eyes alive as they searched houses and gardens. Christ, but Bridgie's a goer. He never stops. Some officers think when the Jerrys leave us alone, then leave them alone, anything for a bit of peace. But Bridgie doesn't think like that, does he? I think he's right. Hardy's voice was tired, barely above a whisper, but it was firm, and Gorman had the feeling that nothing that could happen to them now would make Hardy break. Why do you think he's right? Why is it a good thing to stir them up? It's not a question of stirring them up just for the sake of stirring them up. It's more a matter of never letting them think they've got a firm base to work from. He tries to make them feel more insecure than we are. He wants to impress on their minds that if they tackle us here, they're going to be in trouble. If they think they've made a lodgment in those houses, he's going to disillusion them by knocking them out of them. The first move they make, he hits them. And so long as he knows where they are, he hits them even when they don't move. I think he's right. He never lets them get cocky or confident. Gorman tried to work out the logic of what Hardy had said. But doesn't that just shift trouble elsewhere? Perhaps somewhere where the defences are weaker? Of course it does. But if they get the same reaction everywhere around the perimeter, then they waste that much more time probing for a weak spot. And time's the only thing left on our side. The longer we hold out, the better chance we have of being relieved. Gorman grunted. Hardy and Bridgman might be right in theory, but he was pretty bloody sure there were some places in the perimeter where men were prepared to lie doggo indefinitely, just so long as they were left alone. He lay for a long time thinking, his depression pressing down on him like a heavy weight, his body dull and drained. And then, suddenly, for no apparent reason, he felt lighter of heart, freer of spirit and less tired. And he knew that whatever the eventual outcome, he would not despair again. He no longer cared about 30 Corps or Second Army. The Jordans and Bridgmans, the Hardys and Blakes, were worth living up to, no matter what happened at the finish. He smiled. It was ridiculous to feel contentment at such a time and in such circumstances, but he did. He laughed aloud this time and gripped Hardy's shoulder. Hang on, Tony, I shan't be long. I'll just have a look at Summers and Woodley. Bridgman and O'Neill crept along behind the houses until they were opposite the school. They sheltered between two gable ends, watching the empty window of a classroom on the other side of the road. The unlocated sniper was somewhere to their left, probably on the other side of Company HQ. They would have to cross the road fast to be sure of a welcome reception. Can you whistle? Not very well, sir. I go all right for a bit, then I forget the tune. Bridgman's mouth twisted. Some part of him was still capable of humour. Not that sort of whistling, O'Neill, this sort. He stuck his fingers in his mouth and blew down on them, silently but emphatically. O'Neill's face lit up and he smiled and nodded. Bridgman had never seen the man's face so alive and he wondered what the German Jew was remembering. Perhaps some game played as a child in the streets of a German town. It wouldn't have been cowboys and Indians, more likely Jews and Arabs. Bridgman nodded his head at the open window and mimed a whistle. O'Neill transferred his rifle to his left hand and put his right hand to his mouth. Alan was surprised at the shrillness of the whistle which rang out, a clear, high musical tone carrying almost the quality of a chord. The window opposite them remained empty. Bridgman nodded to O'Neill and the Jew whistled again. After a moment, Alan detected a faint movement in the shadows of the classroom and then a face was cautiously staring out at them. He signalled that they were coming over and prepared O'Neill by gripping his tense forearm. His voice came low and urgent. 
now. Then they were running flat out across the narrow road. Bridgman felt O'Neill move away from him as they ran, almost imperceptibly moving a pace or two to the right, and he knew instinctively that O'Neill was leaving to him the easy access through the gate. As he burst through it, he saw from the corner of his eye O'Neill taking the low wall like a hurdler, his rifle held straight out in his extended right hand, and his left flung back behind him. Bridgman flattened himself behind a thick buttress of the wall and waved O'Neill through the window. Inside they found Brown and exchanged news. No attack had been put in on three platoon, but during the night the enemy had closed up in the cover of the gardens and were dug in in some strength right across the platoon front. Movement in the front classrooms of the school was nearly impossible. The men lay behind their guns, only moving when they were relieved, and then they crawled cautiously to the back of the building where they could sit or stand and perhaps, if they were lucky, drink tea. Alan explained the position and made his request quickly. Brown asked no questions, but sat on the bare boards of the floor, his hand curled round the bowl of a long clay pipe he had found in one of the houses. The mortar group and the peart gunner were dispatched with O'Neill to rejoin Gorman and await Bridgman's return. Alan looked at his friend's face. Gordon's eyes, and for some strange reason his moustache, seemed to be the only live things about him. The rest of his face looked like hammered lead or dark grey putty, and Alan felt that if he pushed his finger into Gordon's cheek, the hole would remain there, the flesh lacking the resilience to spring back. He supposed that he and his men looked much the same, but seeing them all the time, he hadn't noticed it. He stood up and looked about the long room. A row of dead men lay with their heads to the back wall, neatly and tidily. Looking at their faces, Alan realised that he recognised only one of them. He turned to Gordon. Who were this lot? Don't know for sure. Some sort of group from Brigade, I think. They were here when I took over from you. Alan shook his head to clear it. Weariness was beginning to play tricks with his memory. Of course they'd been here, but he hadn't had time for more than a cursory glance at them, noting that one was a senior officer. He'd meant to get them buried, but he'd been moved before he'd got round to it. He grinned at Gordon. No wonder you keep that bloody pipe going. Why the hell don't you bury them? Gordon scratched the stubble on his chin. Been too bloody busy burying our own chaps to worry about strangers. But you're right, I suppose we'd better do something about them. Bloody right you had. Whew, can't you smell them? Gordon stood up and scratched his neck below his ear. Don't know that I can, really, and none of the chaps have complained. Anyway, where could we bury them now? We can't move out front, and that stuffing sniper has got the back covered. If you see Jordan, ask him to do something about the bugger. He's making life difficult. Gordon went through the door into the passage, and Alan slid out from the window and sheltered behind the buttress. He put his head back through the window and called softly to one of Gordon's men. As he started to give the man a message, he heard the first mortar bomb land behind him in the gardens below company headquarters. He waited, his hands tense on the window frame. The next bomb landed on the roof of a house on the far side of the road. He heard his own voice shouting to the man in the classroom as he thrust himself up through the window frame again. I know where the next bastard's coming. And he was right. As his body sailed over the windowsill, his legs high in the air behind him, he heard the bomb land in the road outside and simultaneously felt a hammer blow on his left ankle. He hit the floor and at once scrambled to his feet. He gripped his ankle with both hands, hard as if he would press the pain out of it. To keep his balance, he had to hop on his right leg, and he was in the middle of this antic as Gordon came in. Brown stopped, his big body filling the doorway. He took the clay pipe from his mouth slowly, just far enough to be able to speak clearly. Have you been hit? Alan stopped hopping and lowered his foot gingerly to the floor. The battle, and a week with hardly an hour's sleep, was affecting them all differently, but for some reason he was furiously angry at Gordon's unruffled acceptance of events. When he answered, he ground the words out, forcing them into an almost childish sarcasm. Of course I haven't, you clown. I'm just filling in time, practising for the Scottish Games, the opening steps of the Highland Fling. Brown looked hurt, and as he sat down with his back against the wall, Alan regretted his outburst. 
He took his gaiter off as Gordon sat down beside him. His friend pushed his hands gently away and unlaced the boot. As Gordon eased it off, Alan looked down at his sock, dark and drenched with blood. Gordon pulled the sock off and the blood spurted in a thin jet, splashing Gordon's face and soaking his smock. Gordon pushed his thumb down on the artery and the bleeding slowed to a trickle. He turned his head and looked at Alan, his face concerned. For a moment, Alan felt a great desire to put an arm round Gordon's shoulders and rest his cheek against the black stubble of his friend's beard. Tiredness swept over him in waves and he shook his head, telling himself that the desire to lie down and sleep was a natural reaction to the shock of his wound. Keep your finger here, Gordon pressed with his thumb. I saw a rubber tourniquet in the next room, in a first aid kit. I'll get it. Alan pressed where Gordon had been holding him and with his other hand felt at the wound. Something sharp moved under his touch. He wiggled it and the blood seeped faster. He turned to one of Gordon's men who leaned against a wall, staring dully down at him. Here, see if you can pull this out. It's not in very far. I can move it. The man pushed himself away from the wall with his shoulders, a movement which revealed the exhaustion of his body. Far from moving, he didn't want to do anything positive at all. Until Bridgman's voice had pulled him back to the present, his mind had been hanging in a utopian limbo in which he'd imagined his body lying on a deep velvet couch, half between sleeping and waking. But he knelt down, the clumsy, uncertain groping of his fingers irritating Bridgman more than the pain of his wound, which had subsided to a gentle throb. Never mind, leave it. He would get Brogan to remove the bomb splinter later. Give me a pull-through. The soldier looked blankly at Bridgman. You're pull-through, for Christ's sake, you're pull-through. The man reached for his rifle, upending it and opening the butt trap. He took out the rolled pull-through and handed it to the officer, his face still wearing an uncomprehending frown. Bridgman snatched it and unwound the cord. He wrapped it quickly round his ankle, using the brass weight as a windlass to tighten the cord. The blood, which had spurted again as he worked, slowed to a pulsing ooze and then stopped. He wrapped his field dressing over the tourniquet to hold it in place, forced his bloody sock over the bottom half of his boot and stood up. He had got to the window when Gordon reappeared in the doorway. Sorry, Alan. Can't find that damn gadget anyway. Someone must have used it. Alan smiled back at Gordon's earnest face. I fixed it. It's a good thing I didn't wait for your gadget. I might have bled to death. He slid over the windowsill, and with his body flattened against the wall, he looked back at Gordon. He winked once, prodigiously, and then he was hobbling swiftly across the street to the gap between the houses behind him. Gordon watched him disappear, then stood for a long time, staring at his friend's discarded boot, lying in bloody isolation near the bodies of the dead men. Sir! The sharp whisper brought Gordon round to see the anxious face of one of his corporals. There's a lot of movement. It looks as if an attack might be coming in. His platoon's guns opened fire as he followed the corporal through the door. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. 
Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.